Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. There we go. That's how we get into the Word of God. I want to say thank you to Jonah uh, for preaching last week to us, for uh, expositing the Word and reminding us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we need that reminder. So thankful uh, for him and his desire to preach the Word of God is that is a staple of what we want to do in our church each and every week is to open up God's Word, to be faithful to the text, to draw out its truth and to uh, apply those to our lives, and we're doing that in the book of 1 Peter, making our way through, and we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 down to verse 16, maybe 17, depending on, on how we do. This morning, I've uh, just simply titled this, pas- this passage here, uh, Living Out Your Faith in the Midst of Persecution. Living Out Your Faith in the Midst of Persecution. All you need to do is turn on the local news, uh, pick up an old-fashioned newspaper, jump onto some sort of social media or some news platform, and you will see this, that there is hardship and suffering all around us. All humanity goes through some sort of suffering, some sort of persecution. All walks of life, all ages, all stages of life, male, female, suffering does not consider Skin color, it does not consider your stage of life. It comes in all different forms and in all different degrees. Job said this in the book of Job, As sure as sparks fly upwards, so man is destined for suffering. When sin entered the world all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, sin came and plagued the whole world and suffering came with it. Hardship came with it. And until sin is removed from the earth, suffering will remain on the earth. There's another kind of suffering that that is unique to Christians, and that is persecution for your faith. It is suffering for those who live out the glorious gospel in their life. There's persecution for standing for your faith. There's persecution maybe even from family members or friends or or co-workers or neighbors for simply standing for the truth. It can come on an athletic field. It can come at the water cooler. It can come through an email. It can come while you're sitting on an airplane talking to the person next to you. Persecution can come from standing for your faith at school as students stand for the truth. Persecution for your faith comes in all different places. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 22, You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. In Matthew 24, 9, it says this, Then they will deliver you over to be persecuted and killed, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Proverbs 29, 27, An unjust man is detestable to, to the righteousness. And one whose way is upright is detestable to the wicked. John 16, says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It should be no surprise then, church, it should be no surprise then that Christians have a big dark red target on their back. We are in the battlefield of light versus darkness, good versus evil. We are in a spiritual battle against those 
who hate God and hate his son, Jesus Christ, while we stand for Christ. And this was the case for Peter and the, uh, those who were uh, the recipients of this letter. They were those who stood for Jesus Christ and were persecuted for their faith. And Peter writes this letter to, to be an encouragement to those who are standing for their faith. He knew this, that being a Christian would be difficult. Being a Christian would be hard. Being a Christian is not a cakewalk especially if you actually desire to live for Christ. He knew that hardship would come. And so he writes this letter to them, to the persecuted Christians, reminding them, first of all, if you look all the way back, from the very first sentence, the very first sentences of 1 Peter chapter 1, he reminds them, first of all, who you are in Jesus Christ. You are elect exiles. You are chosen Christians. He gets on into verse 3 and he says this, that you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is, it is unfading, it is kept in heaven for you. He reminds them of who they are. He goes on, even from chapter 1 and then into chapter 2 and in verse 9, he says this, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. He reminds them, you belong to God. You don't belong to this world. You belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to God. You are his. You are his precious possession. He reminds them that you are set apart for God. You're called out of darkness. You're, you're placed into his marvelous light. And what, what Peter is doing here from, from chapter 1 and, and into the first half of chapter 2 is he is laying the foundation for you to deal with your persecution. And he starts out by reminding you, you are not of this world. You're a sojourner and you belong to God. And there is an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. You can handle any persecution here on earth because you belong to heaven and heaven is your home. You're God's. You're his forevermore. That's your identity. That's who you are. And then in verse 12, he says this, it, it hinges there and it says, keep your conduct among the, the Gentiles honorable. Now this is how you live your life. The first thing you do is you submit. Well, who do you submit to? You submit to the government. You submit to an unruly boss. You submit to, to those when, uh, who are persecuting you. Wives, you submit to your unbelieving husbands, even uh, when they disobey the word. Husbands, you live with your wives in an understanding way. You show them honor. You respect them. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3 and verse 8, he tells us this, all of you. He literally says, all of you, everyone, all believers, this is what you need to have. This is the attitude that you need to have if you're going to live out your identity in Christ. This is what you need to do. You need to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, bless. To this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
This is the attitude that you're to have. These are the actions that, you, that you're to have. You're to keep your tongue from evil, verse 10. Your lips from speaking to see. You're to, you're to turn away from evil. You're to do good. Peter is instructing these persecuted Christians on how to live their life. How do I live out my identity in Christ? This is how you do that. In the midst of suffering, this is the game plan. This, this is the playbook that you continue to go back to. Now in verse 13, he continues this thought of how to live out your identity in Christ in the midst of suffering. And he gives us six different ways that we can do that. Let me just read it to you and then we'll, we'll break it down. It says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We're in 1 Peter three fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The first thing that Peter asks of his, his readers here in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, number one is this, be passionate about doing good. Be passionate about doing good. Look what it says in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are passionate about what is good, zealous for what is good, it is hard for people to get upset at you. There is still this general principle that we should continue to do good. That we should still be zealous and passionate about doing good. Even verse 12 is helpful here because, because it says, who is there to harm you? Verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. If God is for you, then who can be against you? He's saying this, that you are under the watchful care and the watchful eye of Almighty God. Therefore, who can actually do harm to you? Your God's. That actually no real damage happens to us when we stand for, for, for our faith. The worst thing that can happen to you, as we learned about last week, is that death would be gained to you. And so Peter is encouraging them, don't stop doing good. In fact, be passionate about doing good to others. In the midst of advancing the gospel, in the midst of, of living in light of the gospel in, in their own lives, he doesn't want them to be discouraged and to say, hey, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, therefore I need to go hide in my house. I need to stop talking to other people. I need to stop pursuing people. I need to start thinking inwardly. Peter is saying, no, don't do that. Continue to be zealous for doing good to other people. Fight back the urge to become a recluse. Fight back the urge to become selfish. 
and be passionate, be, be zealous about doing good for others. Titus 2.14 tells us that this is even why you were redeemed. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Passionate about good works. So the first thing you need to do, church, in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of hardship, is fight the urge to, to just stop living life. To just let others pour into you and you just sit back and do nothing. You just sit back and want to be ministered to. You say, hey, but I've got to go to work tomorrow and I know I'm going to be persecuted. I've got to be at home with some un, un, unsaved family members. I've got to go on Thanksgiving's coming up and I'm going to be around some unsaved friends and some, some unsaved family members. What am I supposed to do, pastor? You're to be zealous about doing good to them. You're to continue to let the light of Jesus Christ shine in your life when you don't want to. Because that's the urge. Secondly is this. Be ready and willing to suffer for doing good. Notice this train of thought. Who, who can harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And then he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. It says this, even if you, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, and, and, and it's implied here that, that you're going to suffer. In fact, some commentators translate this, Indeed, indeed, those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, those who suffer for doing good, those who are zealous and passionate about doing good will receive persecution. And even that thought alone is enough for some of you to think, well, then I'm actually not going to do good because I don't want to receive persecution. I'm trying to avoid it at all costs. And Peter is saying this, indeed, you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Even if that should happen, you will be blessed. He is affirming that suffering will come as a result of living a righteous life. We should not be surprised by this. We should not be taken back by this. In fact, all the way back in chapter 1, he started talking about suffering. He started talking about it all the way back in, in verse 5 and in verse 6. He says that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Because it is testing the genuineness of your faith. In chapter 2, in verse 21, it says this, For to this you have been called, you have been called to suffer for righteousness' sake. In chapter 4, in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. What is Peter trying to say to us? If you're going to live the Christian life, you are going to be persecuted. Expect it. Be ready for it. Be willing to suffer as Christ suffered, for, for to this you have been called. And so we don't stop doing good because we know we're going to be persecuted. 
We don't stop doing good because we know that we're going to get glared at. We don't stop doing good because we know people are talking behind our backs. We don't stop doing good because, because we know those people at work don't like us. Part of being a Christian is having the courage and the boldness to stand for what is right, knowing that persecution will come. And so Peter encourages us, he says this, don't miss it, you will be blessed. You will be privileged, you will be honored by God because you suffer for righteousness' sake. There is a special blessing for those who suffer, for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There is a special blessing by God, a special honor by God that is given to those who are willing to suffer as Christ suffered here on earth. The blessing of God is upon you. Matthew 5.10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Thomas Watson says this fantastic quote. By the way, Thomas Watson is my favorite Puritan. And he's anything he reads, there's things called Puritan paperbacks. Just get into Amazon and Google Thomas Watson. And whatever comes up, just buy it. Just, just buy it. It'll cost you like, I don't know, who cares? It doesn't matter. Just, just go for it. Okay? Godly man's picture is the top of the list. All right. This is what he says. Afflictions work for good. As they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so afflictions prepare us and make us ready for glory. The painter lays his gold upon dark colors, so God first lays the dark colors of affliction, and then he lays the golden color of glory. The vessel is first seasoned before wine is poured into it. The vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus, we see afflictions not as prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. Suffering and persecution, then, is an opportunity to receive spiritual blessings from God that you would not otherwise receive. prepares us for the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. And so we see this as an opportunity as we pursue goodness, as we pursue being zealous for good deeds, as we know that suffering is coming, as we know that, that being persecuted for our faith is going to happen, we should be ready and willing to suffer because we know this, it's an avenue by which God will pour out his blessings into our lives. Number three, be fearless and not intimidated. Be fearless and not intimidated. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There are all kinds of fears out there. I went ahead and took the liberty to look some up. There are the fear of heights, the fear of spiders, the fear of public speaking, the fear of enemies, the fear of your boss, the fear of strangers, 
the fear of humiliation, the fear of man, the fear of clowns, the fear of crowds, the fear of bridges, the fear of closed-in spaces, claustrophobia, the fear of the government, the fear of flying, the fear of driving with your teenage child. There is even the fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth. You might have that fear, that taste of peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. There's all kinds of fears that we have, and not all fears are bad. In fact, the Proverbs tells us very clearly this, that we are to fear the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what Peter is doing here is he says, have no fear of them. He's preparing the readers that, that suffering and persecution is going to come at the hands of unbelievers. Don't fear them. Have no fear of them. Kenneth Weston says this. He says, literally, it's this. Be not affected with fear by the fear which they strive to inspire in your hearts. Literally, don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what the world fears or the fears that they're trying to press into your life. Have no fear of them. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't be troubled by them. Don't be frightened by them. Don't be discouraged by them. Don't be disheartened by them. Don't let them intimidate you. Don't let them frighten you. Have no fear of them. Don't take on the world's fears. The world fears the government. Don't fear the government. The world fears pandemics. Don't fear pandemics. The world fears death. We have no fear of death. The world fears financial loss. And believers are instructed in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, not to have the same fears that the the world has. We don't become anxious at the things the world is anxious about. We're not shaken by the disturbances of this world. We're not shaken by the anxieties of this world. We don't allow the world's fears to press into us and determine how we live our life. And we know this. We live in a world that is uncertain. There's so many uncertainties right now. It's easy for us to just give in and say, oh, well, the the world's fear should be my fear. We're not to be anxious about the stock market, we're not to be anxious about the economy. We're not to be anxious about the rumors of wars that are out there. We're not to be anxious about the coming elections. We're wise. We're discerning. We use the minds that God has given to us. We make good decisions. 
but we don't fear what the world fears. And we don't allow those fears to cause us to stop being a light in the midst of darkness. We're not intimidated by man. We're not intimidated by their power. We're not intimidated by their prestige. We're not intimidated by anybody. We do what is right because God calls us to do what is right in the face of fear. And we stand up with courage. Knowing that we're going to be persecuted. But in that persecution comes blessing. Ephesians 6.10 says this, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So is it your strength, church? It's not your strength. You're strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Joshua 1.8.9 says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so here's Peter talking and writing to these Christians here who were under the threat of Nero, who knew that standing for their faith could mean that they would be burned at the stake. And he says to them, have, says to them, have no fear of them. Do not fear what they fear. Do not allow those fears and those anxieties to keep you from being the brightest light you can be in the darkest of days. Instead, number four is this. Be focused on Christ. Be focused on Christ. Look what it says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, or don't be intimidated. And then the contrast is this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Instead of fearing man, in contrast to that, be focused on Christ. Be devoted to Christ. A.T. Robertson says this. This... Instead of being afraid, sanctify Christ as Lord instead of worrying or being afraid. In your hearts, in the depths of who you are, you are called to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Maybe your Bible says sanctify, set apart, consecrate. Make Christ the Lord of your life every single day. Submit to his lordship every single day. Remind yourself that God is in control and that his son Jesus Christ is on his throne and you are to set apart him in your life every single day. You make him the Lord of your life. This word here, holy, Set apart, it's one of the words that we've been looking at all throughout uh, uh, the book. In chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Again here it says, uh, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart. Purify your hearts with Christ. Purify your hearts by removing sin, washing away the doubt, washing away the anxiety by focusing your mind on Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. Now listen to this. This is so fascinating. This word here, set apart, it's in the aorist imperative, which means this, 
You are to do it now. There is no delay. This gives us a sense of urgency that when you're in the midst of fearing people, when you're in the midst of anxiety, you set apart Christ in your heart right now. You change your thinking. You focus back on Christ. You remind yourself that he is, as it says there, honor Christ, what? The Lord. He uses the word Messiah there, Christ, and then he uses the word for owner or master. And it gives us both these pieces here where he is not just the savior of your sins, but he is also the Lord of your life. And you come underneath both of those every single day. And you have no fear of them. You honor Christ. The Lord is holy. And as you do that, as you honor Christ as holy in your life, and people look at your life and you say, wow, you're living your life without very much fear. You, you don't have anxiety in your life. You're not troubled. You're, you're not even intimidated. You continue to pursue good works. You, you continue to pursue a life of holiness. You're different than the rest of the world. You know what's going to happen? They're going to ask you the question, what is the hope that you have? Which brings us to our next point. Is this, be prepared to give a defense for the hope within you. That's what it says. You're sanctifying Christ as Lord in your life, and then what? You're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Notice this, follow this thought here. He, he's talking about being zealous for good works. He's talking about suffering for righteousness sake and you will be blessed. He's talking about not having fear, not having anxiety, not being intimidated by the world, of, by the world around you, but you've sanctified Christ as Lord in your life. People are gonna wanna know why. People are gonna wanna know what is different about you. Your hope is in something other than this world. Tell me. And you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. It says that. When do I need to be prepared? When do I need to be ready? What does it say? Always. You are always ready. You are always prepared. Means this, to be prepared mentally or physically for some experience or some action. Meaning this, you know what you believe. You know why you believe it. And you can defend the faith. J. Vernon McGee says this. If you're, if you're over 50, you know who J. Vernon McGee is, by the way. You've heard him on the radio. This is what he says. This means... You ought to know more than a little about the Bible. The tragedy of the hour is that there are so many folk who say they are Christians, but the skeptic is able to tie them up in 14 different knots like a little kitty caught up in a ball of yarn. They cannot extricate themselves at all. Why? Because of the fact that they do not know the word of God. 
So many Christians are biblically illiterate. Biblically ignorant. The lack of knowledge. And when an opportunity arises and people even kind of come through the side a little bit with their question about your hope or they say, say in common and, and you're like, and you could feel it within yourself like this is the time. I know this is the time to say something, but I don't know what to say. But I don't have the courage to say it. Or I can't remember where that was in my Bible. I know it's in there. It's a big Bible, though. There's a lot of verses. And we got to go back to this, right? We got to go back to, to Bible knowledge, Bible understanding. Why? So that we can always be ready to give a defense. That, that word there for defense, it's a legal term. Taking the stand, you're, a, you're able to, to defend the faith. But the word also has a casual term to it as well, an everyday term where you're able just simply to talk out what it is that you can say. You're, you're able to speak to things of the Bible and you're, you're able to say, hey, the reason that I'm not anxious, the reason that I have no fear, the reason I don't fear what this world wants me to fear is because my hope isn't in this world. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And I live my life for him because he died on the cross for my sin. And God chose me for all eternity. And I am not of this world. I am a sojourner. And I live for him. And my inheritance is in heaven. That's where my hope is. We say it with confidence. And we know it's to be true. But we also say it like this. What does it say? Yet do it what? With gentleness and respect. So defending the faith is not arguing. It may come to a point of disagreement. It's not a shouting match. It's with gentleness, friendliness, meekness. It's with respect, having respect for the unbeliever who needs the gospel it's responding it's answering it's defending you know the truth it's packed away in your pocket it's packed away in your mind you know it and you're able to explain it with truth and grace and love and courage and boldness with gentleness and all respect you bring it to bear on people's lives Number six is this, be of clean conscience and good behavior. You must have a clean conscience, but good behavior. Why? So when you're slandered, which will happen, they revile your good behavior in Christ. It may be put to shame. You have a clean conscience. You know, before the Lord, you've done nothing wrong. You know, before the Lord, Your conscience is clear. You've done only to do good. So you can, pay a, you can face the opponent without fear. Your life is reflective of a life that lives for Christ. You have a good conscience. You have integrity. You have good behavior. The conscience there is the internal judge that is a witness to us. It enables us to 
to know with or approving of our actions, then your conscience is clear. And your conduct is good. Where does that conduct come from? It comes from Christ. Look what it says. Your your good behavior is what? In Christ. This isn't about morality and just being a better person. This is about the fact that Christ is within you and that Christ comes through you and out of you by your good deeds, by your good behavior. And so when they slander you, which I said they will do, which you know they will do, when they revile your good behavior, when they do those things, what does it say? They may be put to shame. They may be put to shame. What does that mean? It means they will be thoroughly disappointed. It means that they will fail to meet the, ex- the, the expectation that they hoped for. And so we strive for a good conscience. We strive for good behavior that comes from Christ and in Christ and, and through Christ. It's interesting in Titus chapter 2, the same, these, same word, these same words are used here where it says that, it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Sow yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show, integ- show, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So they look at your life and they say, okay, his life matches up with what he says. He doesn't just say one thing and live another life. He doesn't just say one thing and then behind the scenes live something else. He doesn't live a double life. He lives a life that would give somebody else a reason for the hope that is in them. One person said this, people will listen to you carefully if they see you living faithfully. People will listen to you carefully if they see you living faithfully. And he sums up with this, and we'll pick it up next week here. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It's better for you to suffer for doing good. Do you believe that, church? That it's better for you to suffer for doing good than to practicing evil? This is how we live out our faith when the target is on our back. We do it with courage, we do it with boldness, we do it with gentleness, we do it with respect. And we maintain, we remain zealous for good deeds, knowing that we're going to be persecuted, knowing this, that we will be highly favored by God, blessed by God. The blessings of God coming through your life because you are sufferings, suffering in the same way that Christ suffered. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. The encouragement that it is, the, the place where the Word of God both convicts and comforts. We feel all of that this morning. Convicted because we don't know our Bibles as well as we'd like to. Convicted because we're not zealous about good deeds. Convicted because we haven't sanctified Christ as Lord in our heart. 
convicted that because our evangelism is not with gentleness and respect, convicted in so many ways, yet comforted as well, Lord, knowing that you are sovereignly in control. Comforted and reminded that in the midst of all of this, we don't have fear and we don't have anxiety because our our home is in heaven where you reign. And we're reminded of our identity in Christ. We're reminded that we belong to you. And that if anybody understands what it's like to be persecuted here on earth, it's, it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has so much grace for us. He can sympathize in our weaknesses. He can sympathize with us when we're hurting. And he calls us to come to the throne room of grace where we will receive mercy in our time of help. And so, Lord, our, our desire this morning is to live out who we are in Christ in these ways. And we need your help. Today is a new day for us to live out the gospel. Today is a new day to live without fear of the fears that the world wants to press into our hearts. Today is a new day for that. Lord, give us the grace that we need to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.